We are wandering between two worlds. Modernity as we knew it is passing away, and the next world is yet to be born. Like Dante, we are in a dark woods, struggling to know how to think and how to live. Virgil guided Dante with the light of natural reason. Then Beatrice illuminated the path to paradise with Christian revelation. Welcome to the Beatrice Institute podcast, where Christian faith and reason illuminate the best of academic thinking and research. How should we think and live in this time between worlds? At Beatrice Institute, we take our bearings from the good, the true, and the beautiful. I'm Grant Martzoff. I direct Beatrice Institute's Personalism and Public Policy Initiative. How should we organize our common life to promote the flourishing of the person made in the image of God? So I guess today on the podcast is Sarah Horowitz. Sarah has held several interesting positions. She is the founder of the Freelancers Union and the Freelancers Insurance Company. She was also formerly the chair of the board of the Federal Reserve Bank of New York. She was a recipient of the MacArthur Genius Fellowship, and she recently wrote a book called Mutualism, Building the Next Economy from the Ground Up. And this is where Sarah got onto my radar with some interest that I also have in mutualism. So Sarah, welcome to the show. Thank you. Happy Uh, to be here. Great. So I want to start with a couple of questions about you. First, like I said, you've had a number of interesting jobs, but the one that seems unlike the others is chair of the Federal Reserve Bank of New York. So convince me that this job makes sense for you, given the positions that you've held in the labor movement, mutualism sector, among other seemingly grassroots progressive causes? Well, let me say that, you know, I think the people in life that are often the happiest are the ones who have an oeuvre, meaning like your life's work. And I would say my life's work is being a mutualist. And that's sort of the through line through which I've sort of done many different things. And I think one of the most important things about mutualism is first, that there's a solidaristic community. Second, is that there's an economic mechanism. And third, that there's a long-term view. And I actually believe that the Federal Reserve is a mutualist organization, and it doesn't follow along traditional for-profit. All revenues go right back to Treasury. And it's got a dual mandate of looking at, obviously, and, and caring about inflation, but equally important is about employment. And I really believe that we should be stepping up and into those organizations and doing what we can to make sure that they fulfill their reason for being. And I would say the other thing is, I learned so much about how the economy works and how much about the economy doesn't work. And we can talk about that in a bit. But I would say one of the most important things is that with those kinds of money flows, there's a really great patient capital market in there waiting to be tapped. So um, just lots to learn in there. Interesting. So one thing that I found most interesting about you also is that you seem to have a lot of uh, different intellectual influences. So if you had to write a recipe that sort of describes the people that have influenced the way that you think, what would that recipe be? A few dashes of this, a cup of that. How would you sort of describe that recipe that makes up your intellectual life? Wow. Now that is a great question. I would say I, um, my grandfather used to have this phrase and he was, he died before I was born, but I learned so many of his stories. He used to say, excuse me, but I'm allergic to bullshit. And um, I kind of think that I like people who walk the earth and are really trying to have a very realistic view of life, but also really want to make life better for people and have a strategy. So, 
you know, can't help but love Bayard Rustin, Sidney Hellman, who is the head of the Amalgamated Clothing Workers Union. So those are two of my biggest people. Dorothy Day would be another. And yeah, I I really like the people that aren't two-dimensional, which I think is really important right now. And so I would say I've always liked the people that understood how to actually organize things, how money flows work, but also really understand social movements with a very long time horizon. And I think they are the most inspiring. A. Philip Randolph. Yeah. That's one reason I love Dorothy Day as well is she's an incredible social activist, but at the same time, she was a very traditional Catholic and was very obedient to the church. And so she's hard to sort of put in in a particular category, even within sort of contemporary Catholicism. She she confuses lots of people both inside and outside of the church. I know. I kind of feel like that's that's what you really have to look for, because I think something that has happened with social media is people really need people to be two-dimensional. Like, are they good or are they bad? And actually, as we all know from the people we love, nobody is good and bad. It's actually what's interesting is with your complexity, what good have you done in the world? And that is what I think we should be holding people to that standard. What what good did you do? LBJ, okay, not my favorite person, definitely has flaws, but that man passed the hardest civil rights legislation by doing all sorts of things. And I think that sometimes now people are so focused on these ideas of transparency and power that they don't understand representation and trust. And that's what we really have to get back to. We have to start to think about how we actually build a system that gets done what we need to get done. So I want to turn now to the question of mutualism. So what is one particular problem in American public life that's especially amenable to a mutualist solution as opposed to the economy or the state? You know, I think that it actually is is the basics, you know, food and shelter, especially because I think that we've really gotten to some place where progressives really believe that the only thing that's good is things that are done by a central government. And people who are free market people think everything good only comes from the market and the free market. And I actually think that when you see that we have a system, especially with food, that has so broken down that if you're working class, you're just really eating lower quality food. And it used to be that if you were working class, you probably were eating the food of your ethnic group. You know, you probably were eating the food that came from the region that you originally came from. And so we can see all these incredibly bad results of obesity and diabetes. People are eating food with antibiotics and all sorts of processed food, which it's not an issue of snobbery, but if you live, you know, in New York and California, you know, food is wonderful for you. It's farm to table and it's wine with no sulfites, which is great. It's just completely not affordable. And if we started to rebuild a system where people actually had the ability to garden and to grow food and grow food together and individually, it would have all these great effects. People, it's probably the number one antidote to loneliness. And I think the same for for shelter. I think we've gotten to a place where we don't allow people to group together into the communities they choose. Again, both the left and right get it wrong. The left does not understand that it's really fine for a union to build housing that's for union members. And the right doesn't understand that you just cannot have developers develop huge swaths of land for really short-term profit. 
and we're paying the price and we're about to see the commercial real estate fall apart in almost every major city now. So clearly we have to get to at least another strategy in the middle of this ruin. So how do you differentiate the mutualist sector from the nonprofit sector, the NGO sector? That seems to, some people seem to equate those things, but you seem to differentiate mutualism from nonprofits and NGOs. Yeah. You know, it's funny. Sometimes I feel like when I talk about nonprofits, it's like starting the movie in the middle because the nonprofits are here. But the truth is that it really is a function of Reaganomics in many ways, where we really outsourced government to the nonprofit sector. And then really in the last 10 years, we've got the for-profit sector deciding, in fact, that they love impact investing because they can make a ton of money and do well. But actually, really, what a mutualist organization is, which is like a faith group, a cooperative, a union, is a group of people get together because they're trying to do something together. Out of their own community, they can generate revenue. So in a church, you tithe. In every religious group, there's some form of collecting your resources. And then you have your own people deciding what to do with that money. And most, the vast, vast majority of the time you decide based on what the community needs, because if you decide something else, the community is going to see it in a second. The nonprofit sector, in contrast, is now really designed very often around philanthropy, pretty wealthy people. They hire very fancy consultants like McKinsey and Bain and Bridgespan, and they decide what all of us little people need. Then they develop their funding and then they implement. And I think what has happened is this incredible disconnect. But I would say also, and the thing that really worries me the most is the foundation world is now funding ideas. They're funding ideas of the left and the right. And it's getting more and more extreme and hateful, actually. And if you actually ask people what their priorities are, it's, you know, education for their kids, it's food, housing, and they really want things that actually work. And that really worries me. That really worries me. So one could argue that the real height of mutualism in the United States was sort of the late 19th, early 20th century with the friendly societies and the mutual aid societies. And these organizations placed a lot of emphasis on teaching people, especially poor people, virtues such as thrift, modesty, temperance. How important is the promotion of shared moral norms for contemporary mutualist movements? Well, you know, I think that culture matters for everything, not only for good, but for ill. You know, what what we teach about how to be humans on this earth is probably what we learn from our institutions and the institutions that we create. And so I do like the idea of teaching about self-reliance because I think being resilient is really important. And I think sometimes some of those values, especially on the on the two coasts, you know, are really not revered. But I, I think that in families and when you are speaking to somebody who's young and they're trying to figure out what to do with their life, you know, that's usually the advice you give, really trying to have perseverance, really caring, having really deep empathy for what other people are going through, slowing down, listening to people you don't agree with. I mean, I think those are all like the really critical values for people to be able to build something together. They're not the values for how you become an influencer. You know, that's definitely not what you should do if you want to be on Instagram, but that's not really what we're talking about. So returning to this question, well, continuing this line of questioning around mutual aid societies and early friendly societies, was the death of these late 19th century friendly societies a natural or a planned process? 
That's a really great question. Well, first of all, I don't think it was a conspiracy theory. You know, I don't think it was like a bunch of people. But I do think that what really did happen is we got to this point where we started to really think that all these things are the purview of government to solve these problems. And they ended up destroying a lot of the sector inadvertently. But now I think it's that culture. So I think one of the things I really learned when I was at the Fed was I was watching how I wasn't there during the financial crisis, but I was there during quantitative easing, which is when you're buying the toxic assets of the banks that were going under. And they were a patient investor. So when they waited, that turned out to be hugely profitable. Again, it went right up to Treasury and then Treasury just sent it over to Congress. And we didn't think about we could actually do something. And so I started to think there are all these opportunities where we could really be rebuilding mutualism and you could be doing it through procurement where you could say there have to be people who could be providing services in the very local level. And the biggest problem that we have is when government, like with the infrastructure bill, wants to give that money away, they want to give it away in huge chunks because there's a lot to give away. But a lot of the people that are doing really great things on the ground are really building these very small units. And what we have to do is figure out how do you, how do you bridge that? And so I started the Mutualist Society and you just came to an event. So thank you for that. And starting to really think about how do we systematically start to build up this mutualist sector? And I think that there are some very important things happening with technology, with the decentralized autonomous organizations and the distributed ledger. So I actually, and I think people under 30 are really eager to start building things. They started with mutual aid. So yes, there were these ways that markets and government killed it, but I really see a rebirth happening now. So I'm glad you brought up the Mutualist Society. So yes, I, I really enjoyed go- coming to one of those pods. I went to the one on Mondragon and Bologna, I believe, and they're really, really interesting. So to what extent is the Mutualist Society creating strange bedfellows? Yeah, well, you know, I think the interesting moment right now is I think we're about to be in a serious political realignment. And I think that what is going to happen is that people that actually are much, much more concerned about what's happening closer to the ground who care about working people in particular, are starting to need to come together and not be as interested in a lot of some of these more divisive issues, which just because it's divisive doesn't mean it's worthwhile. It just means that there's a lot of disagreement. And I think with the Mutualist Society, we're really trying to say, look, we have to have one conversation around the three principles of mutualism, but it's heterodox. So feel free to disagree. In fact, that's a good thing. But don't prevent people from having a conversation that you don't agree with. And so to your earlier question about culture, I think we really have to teach ourselves how to how to do that. Like, it doesn't mean that you're a sellout if you sit in a room with people that you don't agree with. And I'd say that's probably the strange bedfellows piece, because most people who really do want to improve the world really want to tikkun olam, as we say in Hebrew. The disagreement's not in the goals, it's how to get there. So you can find a lot to agree on. So one thing I was thinking about as I was reflecting on the Mutualist Society is it really relies a lot on sort of online community. But a a parallel conversation I've been having with friends is about the nature of solidarity and whether or not it can be done online. So to what extent does solidarity require some face-to-face element as opposed to simply sort of an online forum? 
You know, it's funny because if you had asked me that question like a year ago, I would have said, oh, you can't. But I actually changed my mind. But I would say that the Mutualist Society right now is virtual because we're bringing together mutualists all over the place from Kenya to Bologna to the Basque region to Korea to um, Latin America and the U.S., So in order to have those kinds of conversations, like we wouldn't have been able to do that had we not had Zoom. But one of the things I'm really working on with others is in our group, people really want to build mutualism locally. So we're building a way for people to do that and learning how to do that together. So the strategy right now is really working well virtually, but it will soon have parallel experiments on the ground. And I think both are really important. So I've spent a little time in Buenos Aires, Argentina, and there's actually a relatively strong mutual sector there uh, in terms of particularly healthcare and social service delivery. So this is my impression that mutualist movements have been much stronger in Europe and South America than they have in the United States. What's your explanation for why maybe this sort of orientation to mutualism has been stronger again in Europe and maybe South America? Yeah. Well, first, let me just say one thing. I actually do think it's really strong in America. It's just really different. So let's get to that in a second. But I would say I too have noticed that where mutualism is absolutely the strongest, and I would say Quebec with the Desjardins movement, um, Mondragon in the Basque region, and Emilia-Romagna in northern Italy, uh, and also in Korea, you start to see that there's very much of an insider-outsider culture. So Quebec really started to build out the French speaking strategies because they didn't have access to the Frank, to the um, Anglophone um, banking systems and money. And Emilia Romagna really started after World War II when the partisans came down from fighting the Nazis and literally had to rebuild. And so, and the Basque region obviously has its issues with larger Spain. So it's kind of like where you create your own economy within an economy that is what makes uh, something go from a mutualist organization to an anchor. And when you look, they're a really significant part of GDP of those countries. They're not like half of a percent, you know, they're like six and 11%, you know, of Italy and Spain. So that's pretty significant. But I would say in the United States, like you see it really in the, the faith communities very strongly. So you see that every ethnic racial group has lending circles. You see it in the black churches from the beginning of time of the AME Zion church all the way through civil rights, through community development, financial institutions. You see it in our union movement and you see it especially in our agricultural cooperative movement. But I would say that it's our culture that has made it, you can't see it really in the United States because even though it's a trillion dollar industry, we're like, well, you know, it's really not that important. And I don't know why that is. And, you know, if anyone really knows, they should definitely get in touch with me and tell me because I'd like to know. Do you think it has anything to do with, I'm going to take a little chance here. I'm interested in your your response. Differences in in religious history, uh, differences between sort of Catholic orientation versus a more individualist Protestant orientation. You know, it's interesting because, you know, you could make an argument about Catholicism with Emilia Romagna and um, Quebec in particular. And I suppose that that's true, but you also see it with Quakers and other Christian groups. You see it with, you know, and I'm sure you're going to get there, you know, health ministries and others 
So I don't know, but I, I do think there is something in this notion of hyper individuality in the United States where that really sets us up to think about what is success and how do we relate to people and how do we value our time. And I think that culturally is really different from Latin America and Europe. So as you know, and you sort of alluded to this just now with the mention of healthcare sharing ministries, but I have a a deep interest in innovative health insurance models. So I'm interested to talk a little bit more about the freelancers insurance company. So yeah. So what was the biggest loss when the freelancers insurance company was closed? Yeah. Oh my gosh. Well, essentially the freelancers insurance company was probably in its era, the closest model to the amalgamated clothing workers that had built insurance companies and banks and housing. We had set up insurance company and our own medical clinics. But really what we had done is we said in the United States, and you really can't make this stuff up, we made sense in the 1930s and 1950s to orient benefits and other things around large employers because that was who could pay the bills but also how people really worked. But as we've now seen, not just with the rise of the independent freelance workforce, which is still a third of the workforce, but now we're working at home and we're working all over the place and you know, work itself is just being transformed. It really doesn't make sense to locate everything at the employer. But freelancers insurance company had modeled this whole system of portable benefits. And you know, we had um, about 45,000 people having gone through those benefits in a pretty short period of time, like six or eight years. And that, I'd say that was the structure for how we really should be doing things was lost. But I would say something else that was even more important is when the ACA was passed, I think that there was great hope that the government through regulation was going to be able to contain the insurance industry. But what was really lost is that other than large employers and very large union benefit funds, there's literally no check on insurance company power. And so insurance companies have stopped being in the insurance business. They're in the reserve business. So when you look at CEOs who, um, and I'll just say, you know, when they deliver their reports, their number one issue is how their reserves are performing. That's why you're cutting benefits and making all sorts of very bad short-term decisions. The freelancers insurance company would always reinvest everything back into our own community. And that was another piece of the model. Yeah. So I actually just had this conversation the other day with a a couple of men that I just met that are starting a new health insurance company on certain Catholic principles. And they reminded me, and I knew this, but I hadn't thought about it, that actually most health insurance companies are basically investment funds. And, and that's really, they take your, they pay for health insurance is that's instrumental towards their broader goal is to invest your money. Yes. And I think, and I'm not, and I don't think that's cynical. I think, I mean, it's sad, but it's not cynical. It's true. And that's, that's what happened. And after the ACA, you know, it is not a surprise that the insurance companies put themselves into an extremely advantageous position so that they could get rid of all their competition. And the way they did it is they upped the reserves. So no no new entrants could get in unless they had very, very big private equity backers. Right. So yeah, that's a really good. That's, that is a, a really good point. So what were the minimum essential benefits in the ACA that ultimately killed the freelancers union insurance company? I read in a New York Times article that it was really the fact that you couldn't meet all the minimum essential benefits and keep the price point and the product that you wanted. What, what were those minimum essential benefits that you felt like you just couldn't provide? 
You know, it's funny. I, I'm sure that because the New York Times wrote it, you know, if I could remember at that moment, but I, I would say it was really this. And this was just the truth. The our, I can remember the moment our actuaries said to us, and remember, we were freelancers unions, a nonprofit, and it wholly owned its for-profit, right? So we were raising money from the nonprofit sector, not the private equity for-profit side. And I remember our beloved actuaries, and I loved them. And the, and by the way, I love them because our second, our first year we almost died, and our second year we were profitable, and we loved our actuaries who really were courageous. Anyway, they said, Sarah, you now have to raise between thirty-five and fifty-five million dollars to pay into the new ACA insurance market. And the good news was, I knew we didn't have to spend any money on management consultants because I knew there was no thirty-five to fifty-five million. So I'm sure that that came out somehow manifesting around some ideas that we weren't going to provide the minimum benefits. But the truth was we were providing probably 10 times the quality of what was covered. And we had come up with these amazing innovations. Like we, because it was our members' money, we were fierce. So we set up a sort of a SWAT team when somebody was sick and we would go in and help. And in the for-profit side, you'd call it like manage their care. But ours was more like, dude, like what is happening? You better be seeing the best place. And so we could contain costs, but we didn't make people unhappy. We actually supported them. So is it that reserve requirement, not just the one at the ACA, but historically the reserve requirement that brought an end to most mutual insurance companies in the United States? Is that really the big thing that's keeping broader um, spread of mutual insurance? Yeah. I mean, like, th- I think it's, it's again, like a really important thing. Like, can you imagine like going on social media and saying the problem is the reserving people be like, what? That's like so boring. That's like <laughs> right. not how we want to talk about it. But you know, the truth is the way insurance started, especially in immigrant communities is you would collect four months of premiums, a premium ahead of time. And that was your reserve. And the, the wonderful thing was you could do an awful lot pretty quickly and get a lot of protection. The downside was a lot of those went belly up. So it wasn't that you didn't need regulation or something that was a little bit stronger. You could have backstopped it collectively with a government fund for different kinds of risk corridors, et cetera. But really what happened was that these big insurance companies figured the best way to pull the gates up was to make those gates reserving requirements because they sounded like consumer friendly. But they really made it so that there's no more competition in insurance, none. And, you know, I couldn't even point to you anymore except for maybe mutuals and credit unions and some community banks that really can say they're doing something differently because pretty much they're not. So how do you weigh off in, in this particular context? We're, we're talking about this a little bit, but even more specifically, regulation versus – how do you think about the, the weighing off of regulation against allowing mutualist organizations to really move freely? The reason I ask is I think within the context of healthcare sharing ministries – is there's relatively low regulation of them. And that's good. It allows them to be a little bit more nimble and do interesting things outside of the regulatory apparatus of the state. But at the same time, a lot of very bad actors have entered the healthcare sharing ministry space. So how do you weigh off that sort of question of regulation versus allowing mutual mutuals and mutualist organizations to kind of do their thing? Yeah. Well, you know, I think it comes down to the North Star. Like, what are you actually trying to achieve? Because for me, it really goes back to these three principles, right? It's a solidaristic community. They want 
healthcare for themselves and their communities. They need to have an economic model that is going to make revenues just exceed expenses, and they need to survive in the long term. And whatever the capital that they raise as a group needs to be recycled back to the community. So in your example, you could imagine having regulators who start to look, where does the money go? Is the money going to a for-profit? Are people entering? It's the same with the association health plans, which were, you know, there were many associations and many bad actors. So what we just did, and people, especially sort of more on the Democratic Party side, just really outlawed it. And that's one thing that the ACA did. And, you know, again, you can cloak that in consumerism, but it really prevents having a check on power. So to your point, I think the answer is, have the news North Star be that you want to see X percent of the population covered by mutual systems like they have, by the way, in France and a lot of the Nordic com- countries, and then have your regulation around the things you want to prevent. So it's not like you have to just be orthodox about things. You have to be nuanced, but be clear what you're trying to achieve. And I think that's what we're not doing. So one thing I've really been wrestling with, the more that I study sort of innovative health insurance models, whether it's you know the freelancers union or mutual insurance or healthcare sharing ministries or the the insurance co-ops that sort of came out of the ACA that just sort of disappeared. No, that I know a lot about that, but Okay, so I, I do yes. want to return to those co-ops, but one thing that I keep thinking about is is mutualism in this sector even possible when the costs are so high? Right? Like how how do you really get a sort of a human level health insurance company when all you need is one NICU baby and the whole thing goes belly up? Yeah. Well, First of all, that's a really complicated question because one of the biggest drivers, there are several really big drivers of healthcare costs. And one of the biggest ones is the short-termism, right? Like I'm not, as your insurer, going to invest in you, Grant, because I don't know if you're going to be here in three years. So why should I really spend a lot of money getting your nutrition into shape or therapy or mental health or any of the things you need? Because I'm not going to reap the benefits. That's one. Another one is that after people um, come out of the hospital, they get hospitalized again because they're not following medical regimens because they don't have the support. And we know that. So, you know, there's a lot of these of these kind of practical things, but they again, they most of them really flow back to this short-termism. And so what you need is number one, to be able to have people stay in a stable system consistently so that the system itself can keep their their the rewards over time. So for instance, freelancers could stay with freelancers insurance company, letter carriers can stay with letter carriers. People who live in this community can be in this one. And that is one big thing. The second is it goes to this larger point of risk pools. So if you just have a very small risk pool and you have one Niku baby, then yes, you can buy reinsurance, but you know, a few of them and, and it's rough. But if you are starting to pool these and aggregate these, and then to me, that's a role of government is to start to provide the back, back, backup capital that is like what private reinsurance does. Then I think you'd start aligning all these interests because government would really care that people get their mental health, that they are getting, you know, massage, 
and acupuncture and other things that we know actually work, but nobody's paying for now because they're, they're in it for the duration. So I just think we'd have to reorganize that, but you can't make a big change if you can't show some piloting. And between the Republicans wanting to do association health plans and the Democrats only wanting all good things coming from central government and the, you know, big insurance companies, it's very hard to have experimentation. Yeah, it's interesting. So there has to be a commitment publicly that the state is interested in promoting localism and mutualism to make that possible. Yeah. And, you know, you could even have certain states. I mean, like, that's the thing about insurance. You know, I feel like another thing I learned from the Fed and from running a hundred million dollar insurance companies is, you know, when you talk to these people who know about money, you know, they have like money tools for everything. You know, we, we sit here talking about like risk pools and reinsurance. Well, they have like 18 different ways, you know, around how you uh, protect risk. It's just that they're deploying it for maximum return to these companies, but actually you, the risk is real. That's, that's not manufactured. It's how do, how do you manage that, that risk? So one thing I've been thinking a lot about with some friends, particularly Jacob and mom, who, who you know now through the Mutualist Society, we keep wondering, is commercial insurance a movement towards solidarity? Because in some ways you could think about it, you know, you're joining together with other people to, to defray risk or uh, does it undermine true solidarity? Because in many ways, when you enter a commercial insurance plan, what you actually do is you anonymize and abstract the people that you're coming together with. And so, you know, that's why the Amish, for example, don't use insurance is because they think it undermines solidarity. So is traditional health insurance a source of solidarity or does it undermine solidarity? No, no, I, that, I think that's really interesting. So um, I would say the commercial system now completely undermines solidarity. But at essence, insurance is a mutualistic, solidaristic activity. And I just tell you, you know, one of my favorite stories about the six societies, which is like a precursor to insurance, was people would pool their money. And then if they got sick, obviously, they'd want to call on that money, but there would be a committee of people who, you know, whose money it was. And they'd like go to Joe's house and they'd be like, Joe, you don't look so sick. Up you go back to work. Like we're not paying for you. So like that was their risk mitigation strategy. And so we forget, like sometimes I think we think solidarity is really nice, but for Joe, who maybe just wanted to take a nice snooze, for a day and rest, which she probably really needed, like, no, it was out of the covers for you, dude. So like, but I still think that we are craving something that is authentic. And I don't think that's just around the topics we're talking about. You know, you go into a big box store and you don't get a warm and fuzzy. And if you do, you're really crazy. But when you go into a store that, you know, somebody actually owns and cares about, better yet, the chairs are mismatched, but the coffee's great. It just reminds you of being a human being. And I think that's what mutualism is. It's it's a kind of warmth. Like one thing I've learned from the mutualist society is we've been running these pods and people, if they're interested, can go to the mutualistsociety.net. But what is really interesting is we, we work on an emergent strategy. We, the union cooperative faith people, when you think about your experience in those organizations, it starts with people having a conversation and seeing what is emerging rather than strategic planning where people tell you what to do. 
And I think that that's where we're going to see cultural change. Yeah, you, it's funny that you mentioned the the solidarity actually leading both to you know relationships between people, but that, those relationships have a price. You know, getting getting Joe out of bed to make sure he gets to work so he doesn't drain the uh, the friendly society fund. But a lot of people don't realize that even like the the bars and the social halls that are associated with these friendly societies. It was, you know, so people could socialize, but also it was to create solidarity so that when when someone did draw on the fund, they would think twice about, you know, kind of screwing over their buddies from the bar. No, it's so true. You know, my favorite thing that I've just learned in the last year is about Desjardins in Quebec, where he would go to the different parishes and talk to the priests about the local farmers. And he was finding out, you know, who was a good risk to loan money to and who wasn't, which, if you know, makes him really probably the first armchair actuary in Quebec. And, you know, that's how you build up a fund. And sometimes we forget that. So, and I think that's another cultural difference. What we're saying is people have to be accountable. They have to be strong. They have to try. We know that people will have falls and be weak and get sick. That's human. So we take that whole humanity and we create a system that can work. The one that I think we're in now is you either have the fiction of the free market that we're kind of invincible, which means it works great when you're young, you know, and even then, not really. Or you have to focus on the very vulnerable, which is like the left right now. And so, you know, both are fictions and that isn't helpful. We're three-dimensional. So I want to conclude our conversation with a little discussion of the post-industrial economy. I know you've written about that quite a bit. And really, the Freelancers Union was really recognition that the economy has changed, right? Gone are the days when you and your grandpa and your dad all worked for GM and you know you had your benefits and you worked your 40 hours a week or whatever it was. And so it's sort of post-industrial economy. So is the future of unionism found in reinvigorating these legacy unions such as Teamsters and the UAW that were sort of built in an industrial economy or is it creating new unions that emerge in the sort of post-industrial economy? You know, I think the reason I've always loved the labor movement is that the labor movement is really a movement about human beings who work, who build what they need at the time. And so you could see the medieval guilds. You could see the craft unions of the workers in the 1890s who were bricklayers and carpenters. You could see the industrial workforce of the 30s with big factories. And at each time, you didn't need to diss what came before because each was stacked either on top of each other or next to each other. Everybody learned from everybody. There was a connection between strategy and goals that is the same. And I'd say that this is another example where I think sometimes progressives are frightened that if you aren't saying all workers should be in a collective bargaining unit in a place, that that's selling out. But I actually think it's the opposite. If you look at you know the Starbucks, Starbucks workers are are figuring it out. Amazon workers have been figuring it out. Or Google, you know, with CWA has been figuring it out. Freelancers Union, the Graphic Artists Guild, the National Writers Union. You know, there's plenty of examples. It's just we haven't codified it into law. And Freelancers Union, that's what we were able to do was um, figure out this kind of interesting regulatory little thing that really helped us act as if we had laws on our side And then we could show what you could build. 
but you don't really see that. I don't, I don't know where that is. I think there's some Republicans that are talking about, you know, that sort of argue that they're pro-labor, but they don't want unions to be involved in politics, you know, and then you have like the left that only wants one model. So to me, it actually is all of the above is the real answer. And to recognize the strength of that and not be so scared about new structures and strategies. And, um, you know, I would really love to, you know, and dream of an elected official that would start to be able to articulate that. And, um, but, you know, the saying goes, you get the elected officials you deserve. So we have to do something to deserve that, I think. To what extent do you think the labor movement can overcome sort of legacy racism in the United States and unify the working class? Well, that's a big question. You know, let's just look at the UAW, which, you know, especially with the Ruther brothers and to their current president, I think has just shown us that they're just stellar and top. And, you know, the labor movement has had a complete legacy of of racism and leaving workers of color out, um, especially domestic workers. And in the early days of the National Labor Relations Act of the 1930s, But what's also been really left out of the story that I have to say, really, I don't understand why, is when you look at the great migration of Black workers from the South to the North, those workers went to work in auto, um, steel, rubber, all the industrial unions, which actually still, I'm sure, had their discriminatory issues, but by and large, were the most integrated institutions next to the military and really built the Black middle class. So I actually think when you look also at the AFL-CIO through the great leadership of A. Philip Randolph and Bayard Rustin and the Sleeping Car Porters, which is a black craft union, that was what integrated the AFL-CIO. And they, in turn, other than the black community and the black churches, were the biggest supporters of the Civil Rights Act. So to me, the labor movement and civil rights go hand in hand. But like, as we were saying in the beginning of this conversation, there's complexity. We're talking about human beings. These aren't all angels, but they had a North Star. They had an ability to get things done. Many of them were genius organizers. And I think we have to take inspiration from that. And we have to not forget that the people who came before us really did build things. And we really have to learn their strategies, whether we agree with their politics or not. If they have something to teach us, let's learn it. Post-industrial economy, is the economy more or less centralized? Is it becoming more or less centralized? I think it's a really, it's a good question because it's, it's, I think it's a very weird economy. You know, I really do because like I am forever really annoyed at the Department of Labor and even still in the Biden administration, I don't think they count how people really work because there still is too much investment in the employee-employer relationship as the only possible one. And so I think we don't really know. And in my work with mutualism, one of the things I've really learned is over and over again, I would hear these terms called the hidden economy, where people, especially poor people, are bartering and doing all sorts of things to get by that's just not tracked or measured. And so I think that we have a very centralized, oligopolistic, monopolistic system where capital is insanely concentrated. But I also think there's a lot going on that people are building very quietly and interestingly, but we have no idea really what that is. And my bet is on them, the decentralized ones, because they're doing it out of need and they really care. And that to me are the two ingredients that matter. 
So last question, is UBI a necessary part of our future as more and more jobs get automated? Is there just any way around this? You know, I I would be for UBI if we could just call it taxation and redistribution, which is probably a better way to be honest about it. But one of my concerns with UBI and with impact investing is, again, we're saying to like really wealthy people, like, hey, how do you feel? What what do you want? What's good for you? And I actually think the strategic question is to communities. And the question there is like, what do you need to build? What kind of capital? What are you trying to do? Do you know that your model looks like this person's model? Maybe you should talk to them. You know, we need like a giant Y combinator that starts to build locally. And that's the big incubation group in Silicon Valley that builds startups and they know how to do it. And so we have to change that focus. And UBI just, you know, I'm sure there are some wonderful things that you could do with it. And I wouldn't want to say no, because like you never know. But really, I'm not that interested anymore in listening to like the daydreams of the super rich. It's just not getting us anywhere. Yeah. It always feels to me a little bit like it's an attempt to placate the masses so they won't revolt against the, the economic system that we've created for them. You know what is just so interesting is like there are these wonderful groups like the Black Church Food Security Network with Pastor Heber Brown, who is building gardens in Black churches and then negotiating with Black farmers to come and sell after church. So people can leave church and go right into the church property. And it's a network of hundreds of churches. Like I'm so much more interested in that than I am in having discussions about UBI, because I think that's part of like, why do we not see it? Because we'd much rather talk to these very wealthy investors. Our media is oriented that way. Reporters are oriented that way. Like you see what you see, but actually the real story is just actually quite different. And at the Mutualist Society, we're bringing people together because we see it and it's going to grow. And now we have to start to say, government, you need to track this. What are your metrics that we're going to measure you by and elected officials? Did you build mutualism? Are there more cooperatives and unions? And how's the business and workings of the faith community and mutual aid groups? And let's vote you in or vote you out based on how you did. Well, sir, that's the end of my questions. I'm really grateful that we were able to have this time together. It's a, it was a long time coming. I think there's a lot of mutual interest. And, and I think that, um, yeah, I'm looking forward to it's what we might end up doing together. Yeah, no, love it. And this was really great. Thank you so much. All right. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening. If you appreciated this episode, please rate and review us on your podcast platform of choice. We love to hear from listeners. Chat with us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. You can also learn more about our programming at BeatriceInstitute.org. That's BeatriceInstitute, all one word, .org. And if you are a university student or faculty member in Pittsburgh and would like to be involved locally, check out our fellows program and get in touch. This episode was mixed and mastered by Yellow Music and Sound. Until next time, I'm Ryan McDermott. Go with God. Go with God.